title of our modest series in 1 Timothy has been A Church Fit for Purpose. Here are some of the things we've learned together. In a local church fit for purpose, false teachers and false teaching that distracts from or distorts the simple gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners must be stopped. Now, that's Paul's language, and it's strong language. In the first service, we had little Eric, Eric with a K, his dedication. And it was very easy for me to illustrate this. Does it matter to his mom and dad that as Eric grows up, he hears the real gospel or another brand or something that doesn't save eternally? Of course it does. And the language here is very strong. False teaching, stuff that's not true, should be stopped. Second, in a local church fit for purpose, people are to pray boldly and widely, conscious that God wants to save all kinds and all sorts of people. The people who come next weekend to Passion for Life and the people whose lives are touched by it will not be the people that you or I think will be touched by it. God has an expansive view of all the different kinds of people he wants to be saved. And so we should pray and have that confidence. In a local church fit for purpose, we understand what God says about the role of men and women in church, and we accept that, although it is radical in our culture, as God's good created order and good for the church. In a local church fit for purpose, godly leadership is really important. The elders who lead the church are to be godly and able to teach. Likewise, the deacons are to be appointed not primarily because they are gifted with practical service, but because of their godliness. And in a local church fit for purpose, there is a clear understanding as to who we as we sit here are. We are, according to 1 Timothy, a local expression of the household of God, His family on the earth, the church of the living God, the living God of glory, His representatives on the earth, the pillar and the buttress that holds up the truth of the gospel in our world. That's some calling or some privilege. I think it's helpful to remember that when we feel our ordinariness. In a local church fit for purpose, godly behavior matters so much. In a local church fit for purpose, everyone in the church family is to be honored and appropriately cared for from the most vulnerable to those in Bible teaching leadership. Now, in the final section that we are about to read, Paul, the writer, lands the plane where the rubber hits the road in relation to practical godliness, godliness and money. And you cannot get more practical than this. As one writer says, it's godliness at ground level, godliness in the wallet, godliness in the purse, godliness in the bank account, godliness in our savings, godliness in our houses, our assets, our pensions, or what we aspire to in the future. 
godliness if you're little with your pocket money, godliness with your uh, allowance. So with that in mind, let's read how Paul finishes the letter, chapter 6, at verse 6. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now on the back of the service sheet, uh, four points. Number one, godliness with contentment is great gain. Beware the desire to be rich, verses 6 to 10. Now, the opening phrase in verse 6, the principle that Paul then expands on, is a contrast with the end of verse 5. So, just glance with me to verse 5. Paul has been exposing the false teachers in the church in Ephesus who are, and he writes, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, permit me a a little tiny sidetrack or aside. Uh, The exposing of the dangers of false teaching is a major theme of the letter. Uh, False teaching takes many different forms. In this letter, and therefore around the church in Ephesus, there is false teaching that emphasizes legalism, 
that's chapter 1. Asceticism, the denial of material things, chapter 4. And then here in chapter 6, the other side of the coin of asceticism, materialism, the desire for material things. And all of these strands of false teaching, legalism, asceticism, materialism, are uh, purported to be teaching that accords with godliness. In other words, uh, speculative ideas, traditions, or legalistic religious requirements, or the denial of material things, or the desire for material things, all of these strands of false teaching are justified as godly, or they come under the pretense of godliness. And here in chapter 6, it's materialism, the desire for riches or money or things. It's, it's a prosperity gospel. Uh, there's never anything new when it comes to the human heart. It's a prosperity gospel. And here's what it sounds like. There's nothing wrong with the pursuit of wealth or riches. Don't listen to anyone who says that's incompatible with godliness. In fact, godliness is the way to be blessed materially. Godliness leads to material prosperity, or a slightly more insidious and subtle take on that. If you desire to be wealthy and are, then you can give your money to the gospel. Now, that's the kind of teaching that was around Ephesus. The false teachers were saying that godliness is a means of gain. So, godliness is what leads you to prosperity. To which Paul answers, verse 6, Now there is great gain, great gain in godliness with contentment. Godliness is not a means to an end, it is the end. Godliness is the most valuable thing we can have. It is great gain, the greatest thing we can have. Godliness is great gain. Now, if you uh, are a Christian, you will hear this in one way as, I guess, a, a caution. If you are not a Christian, I want to suggest to you that Paul is persuasive, not only to uh, Christians, but to to people in general about this kind of stuff. Now, just see how he goes on. The reference to contentment, he says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Is not Paul saying that godliness plus something else is the most valuable thing we can have. He is saying that contentment is one of the things that godliness gives. And there's an obvious contrast intended with verse 10. So read that with me. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Contrast, as Paul intends us to, contentment on the one hand with craving and hunger pangs on the other. How much is enough? Is the answer, your answer, enough? That's godliness with contentment. Or is your answer to the question, how much is enough? 
just a little bit more. That's ungodliness. Without contentment. For the answer will probably always be just a little bit more. There is, Paul writes, great gain in godliness. Just let me pause on that and go back a step. I think if someone were to do an empirical study, I mean, you read this all the time, when people get to the end of their life who are super wealthy, and they will say that it didn't matter in the end. Or when people desire to be rich and become rich, they desire to be richer still. You can read these testimonies anywhere, not Christian ones, just people. Now, there is great gain in godliness. Why is that? What is the logic? I need to see some logic. Why is godliness, the pursuit of godliness or Christ-likeness or, or Christian faith and living for Jesus, why is that of more value, of more worth than riches or the desire to be rich? Why is it that Ben and Kat believe, as they do, that the godliness of their son is matter than anything he can amass by way of material things in this life. Why is the, where's the logic in that? Well, Paul gives us the logic, verse uh, 6 to 7. Let's uh, follow the transition. There is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. There's the logic. We're not going to take any stuff, things, money, with us out of the world, into the world to come. We're not going to take anything with us. Now, you're not going to go home and mull over whether or not that is true, are you? It just is true. Except it's not. We will take something with us. What will we take with us? Godliness. That's his point. Let me go back with you to chapter 4 and verse 8. While bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Just as a little pause there, we get feedback, Roger and I and Sam, the preachers, about what the small groups are getting out of 1 Timothy. One group had a rather lengthy discussion on the merits of going to the gym. And those who didn't go to the gym concluded that they were more spiritual Although, as someone else pointed out, bodily training is of some value. So the point is, you need to go to the gym twice a week and uh, churchy things a lot more. Well, that's legalism, so that's not allowed either. <laughs> One of the comments I heard as a, as a youngster, and for me, uh, sport was something of an idol, to be honest. Running and all that stuff. I wish my... Christian life or my godliness was as disciplined as my running. I think that's a powerful thing. We all have passions for things. Passion for Jesus is what Paul is commending. Godliness, our life in Christ and commitment to Christ, is the thing that we will not leave behind when we uh, die and eternity is before us, Godliness is for present life and also for the life to come. Or godliness is for keeps, for eternity. And of course, with little Eric, I was able to remind them 
after just four months that Eric came into the world with nothing. And they haven't slept since. <laughs> and Eric will leave this world with nothing material. And I said to them, do you, do you desire that he will leave this world with godliness? Of course. Now, verse 8 is a, a wise caveat from Paul. I mean, Paul is sensible and shrewd and realistic. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. He's concerned to guard against the other extreme asceticism, that, that I, I, I'm not going to have anything at all, no food or clothing, and I'm going to be content. So you go out onto the streets on the way home today and speak to some of the beggars all over Morningside. There are lots of them. Why? Because we are materially wealthy in this part of the city. And it would be foolish to say to them that you can find contentment in Jesus sleeping rough tonight. Now, maybe they can spiritually. And Paul is saying, look, I'm not saying you need to seek contentment with no clothes to wear or no food to eat. We need to be warm. We need to be fed. We need homes to live in. But that said, and here's the challenge of these verses, where is for you and I the line of contentment? Is it having enough clothes to wear and enough food to eat and a roof over our heads? Or is our bar of contentment as Christians in the Western world way, way higher than that? Now remember here, and let me just anticipate something that will come later, having stuff is not wrong. It's the desire or love of it that's wrong. You've got to understand, there's nothing wrong with having nice things. Paul doesn't say that, and we'll get to that later. It's the desire for it. But where is contentment for us? Where is contentment? And with that comes the warning, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many uh, pangs. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of ungodliness, like pursuing wealth at the expense of people. One obvious example of that is our families. The pursuit of career and wealth such that your children grow up and they never see you. I mean, that's a common thing. And, and I know it's hard. I worked for 10 years in the real world. And it's difficult not to... It's difficult to keep out of that. It's just real. It's hard. It's just difficult. And you, you've got to find a line in it. I always used to think that if I went home early, other people got landed in the lurch, as they did. So it's real. It's not easy. Or exploiting people to get on yourself. Treating people badly, lying, greed, pursuing wealth, success such that there is no time left for God in his service. Now, let me say to those of you who are going to work tomorrow and are going to be working 70-odd hours this week in professional life, I understand that, and that's how it is in these early years of professional life. 
I think for many Christians, with this kind of stuff, the rubber hits the road when they get to 50 or 55. What are they going to do? Perhaps with the last 10 years of their life when they have material, enough material provision for contentment and enough. What do they do at that stage? That's the kind of realm of this. If I preach this badly, you're going to go to work tomorrow and, and, and feel kind of guilty. It's complex, this. It's about our desire. It's why, what motivates us. The love, the worship of anything else distracts our devotion to the Lord. It's not just money. For people like me, it's devotion to the work of the Lord that surpasses our devotion to the Lord. For you, it might be devotion to sport. You might wish, like me, that your commitment to godliness was as disciplined as your commitment to whatever it is. I did Jake down a little bit. What Jake didn't tell you is he's a cracking golfer with a handicap of something like two or three. But he didn't mention that, did he? Why though money? Because money is a snare. It tempts us, it traps us. It plunges us into ruin and destruction. Even to the extent of some wandering away from the truth, we all need to hear this warning. It is a loving warning from God. So let me ask you what Paul is asking Timothy. What is your deepest desire? What is your deepest desire? Listen to your conscience, not me. What is the deepest desire for your life? Is it success or riches or Jesus? What is the deepest desire for your children? Is it success? And you will have, if you are a child of, if you are a parent of a, a 17-year-old as I am, or, or your parents, it's so hard to resist the pressure for getting into this university or this course or, or this program or this job. What do you desire for your children? Is it Jesus? And many of you here are at the cusp of professional life. And 90% of you will go into professional life because you are, the, you are the, the evangelists from this church Monday through Saturday. You will go into a world where your heart will be tugged along like a rip current with a desire for stuff. And if you run this line of distinctiveness, and it's hard, you will be a, a godly, godly witness in that world. All around you, there will be people, and Paul's language is very strong. It's addiction. It's like, it's a craving, pangs. Now, you would use these words of addiction. What are the pangs? The pangs in this life are that a pursuit or a desire for riches or material things mean nothing in the end. The most unhappy people I've met in life 
are the people who have sought after wealth. One man I can think of in particular, he said, I now have a yacht and I have never been more unhappy. It's a great phrase that, isn't it? And some of the most godly people I have met in life are very wealthy. But their desire is for Jesus more than anything else. So heed the warning. For some of us, as we look into our lives, for some of us, as we look to our children and our grandchildren's lives, for others of us, as we look to the future in our own lives. And then, number two, the charge to the Christian leader and all Christians, verses 11 to 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, the title man of God is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to a Christian leader. And it's Timothy, the leader of the church in Ephesus, that Paul has in mind here, along with his fellow elders. So if you are sitting here and you are a minister or standing here, or if you are an elder in the church, this is primarily directed to you, to me. But if you are sitting here as a small group leader or as a member of this church, someone who will, in time, take more responsibility, this is as relevant to you. Flee these things. Not have a discussion, come to a conclusion, and choose A, not B. Flee them. Run away from danger. Flee these things. What are these things? Well, they are the wealth, the riches, the desire for riches that Paul has been talking about, we can take it literally. Flee from your material possessions. I think the sense in these verses is that perhaps there is a person about to be trapped and tempted, their foot nearly in the slayer, just before it's too late. Flee from these things. Flee from these things and flee also from the false teaching and teachers that justify. So flee from your desire for wealth and flee from the podcast you're listening to that says that's okay. That's what he means. Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, and gentle. Notice the word pursue, the pursuit of godliness not an indifferent, apathetic uh, attitude. It's active, energetic commitment to godliness. The pursuit of godliness is how you flee from worldliness. In pursuing godliness, you find yourself fleeing from ungodliness. That's how it works. The more we have a passion for Jesus, the less we have a passion for that stuff. See, in any of it, it comes down to our rhythm in our Christian life, reading our Bibles, praying, going to our small groups, coming to church. That's not legalism, it's discipline. It fuels our passion for Jesus. Like singing that song we just sung, which you all loved. That's one that will last forever. It's a great song. 
Even coming to church to sing with others and be encouraged means that we will leave pursuing this stuff and running from that stuff more. What are we to pursue? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, all different facets of God. One of you asked me last week why it is that I keep looking to my phone. I'm not looking at texts. I'm trying to look at the stopwatch. And that should give you confidence that we do try hard, even though I fail. I'm the bottom of the spreadsheet, which means longest. I shouldn't have said you that. I didn't have time. Now, Paul intends us to contrast that list. You are to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. What do the false teachers pursue? The end of verse 5, conceit, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Now, think of a corporate, think of a church. Often in churches, there is conceit, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. I mean, let's not pretend there isn't. And you see, when an individual in a church begins to love Jesus more than they love anything else or pursue righteousness, faith, love, steadfastness more than anything else, the whole atmosphere in the church is blessed by that one person. The power of one. And when the whole church begins to do it, when the whole church begins to do it, the reputation of the gospel in this community goes way up. Not the reputation for uh, the content cerebrally of the gospel just, but the, the sheer impact of this kind of living when people encounter it. But it is a fight. It's a battle. It's a battle for godliness in our own lives. And, and you listen to Jake's testimony. It's a fight and it's a battle that goes on and on for godliness. It's a battle against the endless drift and compromise of false teaching that conforms with the culture and sings with the spirit of the age. It's a battle against the rip current of the culture that drags our feet. The rip current that you will experience more than me when you go to work tomorrow. The rip current of desire for material things. So fight the good fight of faith. And Paul's language here is realistic. When you are at work tomorrow, when you are, as some of you will be, in positions of uh, influence and seniority, and with that goes a great big pay packet, you can't avoid that. Fight the good fight of faith. Keep hold of eternal life. Keep hold of eternity. Keep investing in that. And keep on confessing the truth, the real gospel, the simple biblical gospel remembering you are part of the church of the living God. Now, and then comes the charge. Such weight, such solemnity, such importance attends this. Uh, verses 13 through 16 of the charge. It's very moving. It begins and ends with Jesus. In the middle is the charge. Uh, and uh, let's look how it begins. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So I charge you, Paul says, he's charging us. These are the words of God in his presence, in God's presence, and in the name of Jesus Christ. Think of Jesus before Pilate, who did not falter. What did Jesus display before Pilate? Did he not display righteousness, godliness, 
faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness? Did he not fight the good fight of the faith? Did he not take hold even then of the eternal life to which he knew he would one day be called? And did he not through his death make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses? In the presence of God and in the name of Christ, who is your example and who now lives in you by his Spirit, keep the commandment. Verse 14. Keep the truth. Comma, I think there, unstained and free from reproach. Keep the commandment, keep the truth, and be godly. I think that's what it means. It's like uh, chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on your life and on the teaching. And then the charge ends with Jesus and God until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, God the Father, will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And uh, at that point, we need another song. That's why you should end a letter. But Paul in his mind knows that if you go home, you probably won't get all that stuff about materialism right. You'll lapse into legalism or asceticism, and it will all go wrong. Now, off the back of that glorious symphony that demands a song, Paul goes back to riches. Now, here he is charging the Christian rich, which includes most of us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of eternal, uh, truly, what is truly life. Now, Paul is speaking to the Christian rich. Who are the Christian rich? Most of us. There are three categories of wealth in the Bible, poverty, adequacy, luxury. If the Bible commends any one of the three, it's adequacy, adequacy. We are all in the luxury bracket, most of us are, or we will find ourselves in that just by dint of where we live and our culture. What does Paul say to us? Don't be haughty or proud of what you have. That doesn't mean to say don't have a nice car, but don't be proud of it. If you can manage that, as many do, if you can't, don't have a posh car. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't put all your store in that share capital that is accumulated in your portfolio, because what will you do if a crash comes? As it did for many people. And you will lose it all when you leave the world. Rather, set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's an important phrase. Go home and wrestle through what all this is saying to you, but look at your house, look at the pictures on your wall, look at the nice bike you've got in the garage, look at your golf clubs, look at your membership of the golf clubs, your drums, your guitars, whatever it is that you enjoy. And God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't do anything daft. Don't misread what Paul is saying. It's not having stuff that's problematic. It's loving it. Wanting more of it. 
It's desiring riches, craving more, being proud of what we have, and setting our hopes on our wealth and success. You know these programs on telly, the world's most fantastic homes by the sea. None of you watch them because you're all more godly than me. I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching that and, and just be, but, but you see how easily your heart's desire can be for it. And before you know it, you're just going to take that job in that place because that will give you a bigger bonus and so on and so forth. Now, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not in that world anymore. But, but God's word does, and it's inspired and it's real. What are we to do? You are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Notice he doesn't say give away all your money. He says do good works. Be godly, whoever you are, and to be generous with material things and ready to share. Generous with your money. Generosity is a million miles away from legalism. It's the spontaneous overflow of a a, a Christian heart that loves Jesus. Give generously, thus increasing the amount of money in the bank that matters, which is eternity. Storing up treasures and a foundation for the future. Back in January, we outlined a vision for the church over the next few years that involves plugging the financial gap when Napier uh, disappeared from uh, their occupancy Monday through Saturday. It involves developing our ministries. It involves planting a church. Church plants, when I last looked, are not free. They cost money. The Bona Trust, investing in the next generation of leaders for the church in Scotland, has a 2020 vision to support people in training at a level of £250,000, which is a catalyst to another £750,000, one million a year invested in training. And when I go around the country again and again, people say to me, that is so unrealistic. It's the price of one big house. It's not unrealistic. What's the answer, though? Should we put one of these silly things on the wall that you fill in with red ink when you get 20p, all that stuff? Or a, a more modern version of that? Should we run a stewardship campaign? Shall we produce all manner of statistics? Or shall we ask God to make us godly and thereby generous. Of course it's all possible. I've never ever doubted that when the right gospel vision comes in this church family as in any others, exactly the right amount of money will be given to fund it. Always happen. Now, you can misuse this. You can kind of build your own empire and pretend it's godly. But that gets found out in the end. Finally, charge to the Christian leader and all Christians. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, and by professing it, some have swerved from the truth. Grace be to you. And the point here is that you have a job, I have a job, uh, to pass on the legacy to the next generation. Guard it and give it on. Guard it and give it on. Last word on 1 Timothy. It has been, for me, and I trust for many of you, a life-changing, powerful, and practical book to study. It has been off-limits to us as a church because of all its controversial stuff. And having studied it and wrestled with it as a whole church family, there is no one book over my 10 years here that has had a bigger impact on our corporate life as a church. 
two things have stuck out to me. Firstly, who we are. Who are we, this motley bunch sitting in front of me and that motley minister behind the lectern? One of our elders, uh, whenever I see him, he was in the first service and I quoted this and you could see him visibly start. He says to me all the time, and he's not the kind of guy who's effusive with his language, he says it's amazing to think that we are the church of the living God in this community. What dignity the Lord affords to us. This little motley bunch, the church of the living God, and so therefore knock on your neighbor's doors, post an invitation on Facebook, invite people next weekend not to hear the RSNO, not to watch our actors doing the Mark drama, not to listen to Andy Robertson, but to experience what it's like to be in the church of the living God, which is exciting. The second thing that has stood out for me is godliness. It's all over this letter. Not just the need for godliness, but the blessing it is and brings to others and to all of us as we seek after it. It is great gain. It is contentment. It is satisfaction. At the end of people's lives, if they have pursued material wealth, you will not find someone who gives a testimony, a Christian or somebody who is not. No testimony will say that it was worth it. But if you sit with a Christian at the end of their life who has pursued godliness, their face will shine. Their heart will shine. It was well worth it. And so Paul's words to us, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Tomorrow as you go to work, in that tough world, have another day of fighting the good fight of faith. Keep one hand holding on to eternity and keep making your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the very practical teaching in this letter as we come to its close. Help us, Lord, to live and to apply its principles in our lives, and in the life of this church. Thank you for this series on 1 Timothy, for all that it has been to help us and guide us and change us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.